Okay, good morning everyone. Sorry I'm running a few minutes late. We're going to be jumping back into Martin Chemnitz in Caridian at page 66. We'll be looking at free will and human powers. Those of you who have uh, attended our service earlier in the day will be well acquainted with this. We're going through Article 2 and the Formula of Concord as part of our reading, so this will have great overlap with that. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, without further ado, just to jump into the topic. Question 127 is one with a simple answer. Can a man of himself and by his own powers begin and effect the things that are required for true contrition? Answer, not at all. For true repentance, part and parcel of which is unfeigned contrition, is a gift of God. Okay, so important for us to, again, contextualize ourselves. We're talking about man after the fall and before conversion. Can a man natural man born into the world, of himself and by his own powers, begin and affect the things that are required for true contrition, sorrow over sins, which is the first step, as it were, of repentance. And the answer is no, for true repentance, part and parcel of which is unfeigned contrition, is a gift of God. Okay? So in this sense, God converts us, and he does so first by means of his law creating contrition within us, repentance within us. Gets a little definitional, a little semantic there, but it doesn't matter. He creates in us contrition. He creates in us repentance. And then through his gospel, he creates in us faith, trust in his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's God's act of converting us. So does God convert us? Yes. Does God, is God the one who gives us repentance? Yes. And that's particular, in this case, to conversion. The Book of Concord, again, Article 2 on free will, which is the lengthier treatment and the binding treatment of this subject, will say that after conversion, when the Holy Spirit's given us a new heart, regenerated us and made us new, there is a sense in which we participate in our repentance and cooperate in our repentance. Are we talking about conversion any longer? No. Conversion's over and done. Conversion's the foundation upon which this teaching is built. And that's self-evident. Like, let a man examine himself. Do you just sit on the couch and wait for God to examine yourself for you? (laughs) No. Let a man examine himself. Uh, And then some of the active language of repent in the New Testament is already spoken to those who are following Christ, who are Believers in Christ. Repent in that narrower sense doesn't mean convert, but it means recognize your sin, move away from your sin, right? Receive absolution for your sin, go and do better. All right, so then on to question 128. Does man therefore have no free will? We call free will the human powers or faculties in mind, heart, and will. So again, I'll point out here, notice that this is the classic understanding of psychology, that is of the inner being of man. So the mind is the intellect, the heart, the emotions, and the will, self-evident. So we call free will the human powers or faculties in mind, heart, and will, namely when the human mind can understand, consider, 
and evaluate something that is presented or proposed, the will and heart can choose, desire, and pursue or reject and flee that which has been pointed out by the intellect. They can command or not command the members to take or suspend certain action. Therefore, one cannot rightly give answer to the proposal, or to, excuse me, to the proposed question without making a distinction. But the opposites must be recognized. For with regard to sins, in them, natural man of himself, since he is the servant of sin, is exceedingly free of righteousness as Paul says in Romans 6.20. For in mind, thought, heart, will, and all powers, he is inclined to evil continually. Genesis 6.5. But it is a most miserable liberty to be the servant of sin. John 8.34-35. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. So it's a miserable liberty. Isn't that wonderful? To be a slave to sin. Oh yeah, you're free to rebel against God's law. That's the freedom. And that's how it presents itself to the natural man. God's laws are confining. They're binding. They limit our freedom. That's how the natural man perceives these things. The spiritual man says, okay, go about all your freedom and at the end you find yourself all tangled up in a trap and all tangled up in cords that are invisible, and you're unable to escape or set yourself free. So you have that paradox. What appears to us by nature to be free is in fact enslaving, and what appears to us to be enslaving, namely God's law, is in fact freeing. There, that's the paradox at play. But the, the natural man cannot perceive any of this. He just perceives freedom as freedom from the law. All right, continuing with Chemnitz. Then with regard to outward and civil things which are subject to the judgment of reason, likewise with regard to outward discipline, there also unregenerate man has some liberty or ability in mind, will, and heart. All right, so what's being stated here? Well, a distinction between spiritual free will and civil free will. So this distinction goes like this. In spiritual matters, you don't have free will. But in terms of how you operate and conduct yourself within the world, you do have free will, as Kenneth says, to some extent. We're a lot less free here than we think we are, but we're kind of tra- traversing into philosophy. <laughs> It's important to see that a distinction is being made, though, and the Lutheran point is a theological point rather than a philosophical point. The theological point can't be made without tangent to the, the- to the philosophical point. And the philosophical point being we are free in those things. Luther uses this distinction, I think it's very helpful, in those things that are below us, which are civil things, or what's the other word that he uses? things subject to judgment of reason, and things that have to do with outward discipline. So these things, by the way, if you're just looking at the civil sphere or the the world, it's why you can look at two sinners who reject Christ and are therefore both damned, but you can say one is good and one is evil, even on a civil basis. Because one is ordering himself according to an outward discipline. One is more conformed to the natural law of God. One is conducting himself with a civil righteousness, whereas another one isn't. So even Jesus will use this language. Um, The scripture is kind of bilingual on this point. In one way of thinking, in one frame, there's none who does good. There's no such thing as a good person. But then when when viewing it through the other lens, as it were, or speaking in the other tongue, as it were, you can make a discernment and a distinction between the good and the evil amongst those who are not in Christ. Self-evident, but 
boy, I don't know, still needs to be stated in our warped and twisted age. Okay, yeah, he has some liberty or ability of mind, will, and heart. And can live blamelessly according to the law. Now, notice that word if you've been tracking with the Proverbs class, blameless comes up all the time, and I've indicated to you that blameless does not mean sinless. And here you have that borne out as well. So you can look at a man in the civil sphere and you can say, well, he's certainly not without sin. He's got sins all over the place, but should he be imprisoned for life or for 10 years? No, he's blameless according to the law. Well, does that, you know, does that mean he hasn't broken the speed limit or something? No, just means that he's a, bl- a blameless man. He just is not under the accusation of the civil law. So our default position is blamelessness. But of course, we can run afoul of the civil law in one way or another and lose that blamelessness or have that blamelessness lost and then restored or lose it permanently, as is the case if you become a felon. You lose that sense of blamelessness. You lose some of your civil rights and freedoms. Or if you become a sex offender, you have to register and announce that to people. You've lost a certain kind of civil blamelessness. So you can see how blamelessness is distinguished from sinlessness and how it's an important category to have in mind. Chemnitz uses it here that you know, when you look at it in the world, you can look at a guy who conducts himself in the world in, a, in an upright and blameless manner. Is he thereby saved? No. Is he thereby better than the guy who's a career criminal and spends his days making everyone else's life miserable? Yes. Manifestly so. All right, I see a question or comment. Please. Well, this morning, probably I woke up a little bit more confused than <laughs> other days, but um, the conversion that you're talking about, when we're, is God's gift, so we get converted. And we are no longer uh, under Moses' law, but under Jesus' grace. So we in this morning, the in in the morning service, you talked about suffering <clears throat> that God gave gives us, and those suffering, what I understand is like exposing our weakness and our sinful nature, so we can. Repent, and uh, but how can you put all that together, the conversion, which is the salvation, and then putting the sanctification through the work of God in our lives through suffering and our repentance, contrition, and all these. Um, can you put it all together? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll try to do it without taking the next month of classes, to, which would defeat the purpose. Maybe the first thing to help us, maybe, maybe an existential frame will help, all right? You're born into the world, and it really doesn't matter whether you're Christian, whether your uh, parents are Christian or whether your parents are Jewish. It doesn't matter for our purposes or whether they're Hindu or Buddhist or nothing at all. It just doesn't matter for our purposes. You come into the world and God has, just by virtue of your very creatureliness, God has written the natural law on your heart. You have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And that sense is more or less correct. Now, you can even beginning at a very early age, on account of both nature, your genetics, and nurture, what you experience, begin to suppress that natural law and begin to distort and warp that natural law, begin to suppress the knowledge of God. And that is going to have an effect greater or lesser on you than a person, as a person. So far, so good? Okay. So that's, that's the first thing, is that just by virtue of our creatureliness, God writes 
the natural law on our hearts. This is where St. Paul reasons that, look, whether you have the Ten Commandments or not, you're not excused. You have the conscience accusing you or excusing you. You have the law of God. You're a law unto yourselves. So your own conscience will tell you if you're a sinner or not. In that sense, you don't need the law. Well, why then the law? Well, the law helps in every way. It's a magnifying glass on that reality, showing your sins all the more acutely. That's why the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, um, have every advantage having the oracles of God given to them because it just amplifies. But, it, but it's only an amplification. It's not as though they have the law and the Gentiles are just lost. We have the law written on our hearts. So far, so good. I think that's the basic principle. But are we capable of turning to God in that state? No. We have a very rudimentary sense that there's a creator and that we're accountable to him. And we only have that insofar as we don't suppress it. The world is filled with people who suppress the knowledge of God, who worship creation rather than the creator, who know that they're, they've fallen short, know that they're accountable, and so concoct all manner of lies in which to live to deny those truths. I mean, the biggest one of all is being celebrated. <laughs> right now, the biggest one of all is being celebrated, isn't it? An entire month long of suppressing the knowledge of God and suppressing the knowledge that we're accountable to him. And there are standards written into nature itself. There is design and order written into nature itself that if you transgress, you know you're transgressing it. That has to be suppressed. You know, you've, you've heard the line, methinks he doth protest too much, and that we have a month long of protesting too much. If it was completely natural, normal, and right... You don't need a month to convince everyone it is. You see? Yeah, 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 exactly. I know. The stupid calendars assign everything. Like I need to know which Hindu holiday it is, along with uh, ugh, a bunch of nonsense. So suppression of the knowledge of God. That's, that's maybe the... That's maybe just in terms of existential, like what it's like to be born into the world as a creature, what you experience and what you do. So you're without excuse because your own conscience excuses you or condemns you. And in all case, in every case, it condemns you. Plus, you just have to, I mean, we, um, we give, it's just kind of absurd. You come into the world and you recognize immediately, are you going to be here forever? No, you're going to die. And what happens when you die? What happens to your body? Is it a beautiful, lovely thing? Is your body get filled with rays of light and become, you know, just become this wonderful, glorious, flower-scented thing? No, quite the opposite. You become a hulking, rotting, stinking mass. You're eaten by worms, if not animals. It's ugly, 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 ugly. Why would we come to such an ugly end? Why would death happen? Why would we be? Why would, why would a creator do that? So again, these things are just so obvious as to, to make all men without excuse. That there is a creator, we fall short of his glory, and he who created the heavens and the earth, all the majesty and glory, all the intricacy, do you not think that he knows how to preserve us forever? Do you not think that he knows how to, if we are to die, give us a beautiful death? But instead it's, ugly. We also see the world falling apart. We see men not functioning. We see all of this dysfunction and rebellion. And we can do all of that without a single Bible verse. It's just what Gentiles who have looked at the world, and some of the more honest ones, have seen it and accounted these very things. Now they've come up with their own medicines over and against it, man-made, of human origin. And that used to be called philosophy. Philosophy was acknowledging reality and trying to form a way of thinking about it and understanding it and conducting oneself more or less uprightly within it, speaking true things within that creation. But we've lost utter sight of that. Okay, so that's a good place to start. I'm already going lengthier than I intended. But the foundation will help. 
So all human beings then have a knowledge of God and a knowledge that they're sinners. Sometimes you can find human beings who are in a state in which they openly acknowledge that. They're suffering, they're hurting, they know they're not right with God, and they don't know what the answer is. And they're in despair, they're in a state of nihilism or meaninglessness, probably they're self-medicating with one thing or another. Those people, generally speaking, are in a better state to hear the gospel than someone who's in a very different state. Probably the majority of the world is not in that state or not willing to admit it. Probably the majority of the world suppresses the knowledge of God in such a way that they, especially here in the West, let me just talk about here in the West, let me just talk about the United States, in such a way that they just say, there's nothing to it. We're just apes. Eat, drink, and be merry. There's nothing to this life but extracting maximal pleasure for it. So I had a friend in uh, undergrad who put this so well. He said, my entire life philosophy is just being comfortable. And I said, well, why why would you work? Isn't that uncomfortable? And he says, well, you only work so that you can put yourself in a more comfortable position. So the whole thing is just moving to greater and greater comfort. And, you know, and that's, that's, I think that that's a fine summary of how most people look at life. Okay. So when you're in this hardened state of, I've, got a diff- I've suppressed the knowledge of God to the point where I don't think he exists, or if he exists, he doesn't matter, we're all evolved anyway, out of monkeys or whatever, and so the only thing here is my pleasure and what I can get out of life. Uh, then you become, your heart becomes hardened in such a way that if someone comes and tells the gospel to you, you're not likely to receive it. If someone says there's meaning and there's purpose and there's all these beautiful things that God gives in and through his son, they're going to say, why do I need any of that? And that's probably when I think of average Joe Schmo Orange County guy zipping up and down the freeway and living his life and thinking about the next iPhone and thinking about his golf appointment in the afternoon and how he's going to make more money and where he's going to fly to next, he isn't interested in, hey, did you know that there's meaning and purpose beyond all of that? He's like, why would I need meaning and purpose beyond all that? (laughs) Or yeah, 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 I know. But I'm interested in the latest BMW model. So... That's the kind of hardness of heart. When you encounter that, what's the spiritual treatment? And that's where the law of God and the, sense, the reminder, but it's more than a reminder, the proclamation of the truth that we are accountable to him and your life is coming to an end. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What does it profit a man if he has all the new gadgets but loses salvation? That kind of teaching, then, is what needs to be done in order to prepare that heart, to create within that person contrition. That's the language of Chemnitz. So that then they can receive the gospel. Now, the core of the gospel, of course, is the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, but it's much more than that. It's much more expansive than that. If there's reconciliation with God, then there's an answer to death. If there's an answer to death, then all of a sudden everything is imbued with meaning and purpose and a lasting quality. Whereas Ecclesiastes is the master class study on this because if there is no answer to death, then life has no meaning. Because everything you do is going to be gone and forgotten. Your very name is going to be gone and forgotten within a generation or two, maybe three. And even of the famous people we know, we know a fragment of them. We don't hardly know them at all. And what does it profit them to be known? I want my name to be known and echo through, you know, millennia. While you lay in the ground unconscious? Who cares? Who cares? It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all empty. Whether you, and again, Ecclesiastes, whether you live well or don't live well, whether you succeed or don't succeed, death erases meaning so that everything is vanity. Meaninglessness of meaninglessness, all is meaningless, would be a modern translation of the opening lines of Ecclesiastes. And it goes on to describe why. But in the remedy to death that's at the heart of the gospel, then everything is suddenly imbued with meaning and purpose. 
And that meaning and purpose is ultimately found in right relationship to God. Who brings that whole reconciliation about through the preaching of the law and the contrition or the suffering that creates contrition and then the gospel of his son that converts our hearts to where we go from unbelieving and suppressing the knowledge of God within us to believing and having that knowledge of God flourish and become ever more precise and ever clearer? Who affects that? And the scripture's answer is God and God alone. That's basically where we're at right now in the text. Is the free will the God God's judgment falls on if the if the person cannot have any role in conversion, then the judgment of God, I'm thinking of Pharaoh, you know, it falls when they suppress the truth. Is that where the personal responsibility comes in where they suppress it? Yeah, in, in particular, the examples of hardening were given in the scriptures are those who are confronted with the word of God directly. So it's beyond just a suppressing of the inner knowledge of God, but there's external. I mean, sometimes we, we feel bad about Pharaoh. We need to actually go read, reread the Bible. I mean, Pharaoh is seeing miracles happening that just shock and stun the imagination that only literally God could do. And he's seeing these things and being like, okay, I can tell this is God. Let the people go. And then, you know, he wakes up in the morning. He's like, on second thought. (laughs) And this isn't just once or twice. There's 10 plagues. So, you know, we shouldn't feel... There are, there are many stories and many of the parables of Jesus work this way too that are intended to create disgust in us, that are intended to create, like, how could you possibly be that scummy? And Pharaoh's one of those. When God hardens his heart, we shouldn't be, ooh, what's God doing? Is he being naughty? I, you know, my goodness. So, yeah, that's, uh, I think that that's key to understanding the hardening Uh, motif in the scripture. All right, so once God converts us, once he creates through his law, contrition, and faith, we can call that repentance, we can call that conversion, we're his and we're made new, and we cease to be merely the natural man, and we become a new man. So then the new man and the old man are bound together, but only for a time. It's where death itself is transformed, because now what dies in death is just the old man. That's why Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You live and believe in him. When you pass through death, what gets circumcised off of you, what gets cut off of you, is just the old natural man who sins. Paul goes so far to make a distinction. He says, if I agree with the law that it is good, then it is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells within me. You can even make this distinction. So I can't wait for sin that dwells within me to be cut off. Who will save me from this body of death? Christ Jesus, my Lord. When I die, he will cut that off. All right, so then as a new man, what's our relationship to the law. Well, if we think of the law of Moses, we need to remember that it falls away in these two ways right off the bat, that the ceremonial law of Moses delivered on Mount Sinai, what to sacrifice when, circumcision itself, the whole temple structure, the whole priest, Levitical priesthood, the whole sacrificial system, all that's passed away. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled and passed away in Christ. We're not under the ceremonial law. We're also not under the civil law of Moses. Think of the book of Deuteronomy and what happens when your ox gores your neighbor's ox and so on and so forth. We're not under the civil law of Moses anymore. Do we remain under the moral law? Well, yes and no. We're not under the law of Moses in this way that Whoever is in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. So is there, any, is there any condemnation of Moses' law remaining for us in Christ? No. It's been poured out on Christ for our behalf. So we're freed from 
the law's condemnation, we're also free from the law's call to self-justify because we've been justified in Christ. That is, we've been made righteous in God's sight on account of Christ. Make sense? So in all those ways, the law is gone. But the natural law, the way that God is in his very nature, the way he's written men to be as we are made in his image, that natural law, and that happens to be the core of the Ten Commandments, does that go away? No. It's the very essence of who God is. It's the very essence of who we are in his image. It's really, truthfully, the very essence of love. To love God and to love neighbor. God is love, and he would have us be filled with his love. Okay, so in that sense, we're not free from the law. Now, God empowers us to begin to love him and to begin to love neighbor. It's fitful, and it's, you know, it's fitful, and it's struggle, and we often sin much in what we do and leave undone, right? And all those other categories we looked at earlier with Chemnitz. But we can cooperate and participate in, that, in those acts of love toward God and toward neighbor. Because God will call you to things and you will, have an, you will have a freedom in great big air quotes to do it or not do it. As you don't do it, you're simply being bound in sin. As you do do it, you're letting his love have its way with you. Okay? And that is a cooperation. Now, do we take credit? Do we... Oh, yeah, I cooperate. No, it's all, it's all a gift in the sense that your very status as a new man, as a new creature, your very ability to cooperate, the opportunity, the knowledge, everything is all gift. So we don't ever hand God a spiritual resume and say, look at all the ways I cooperated with you. That's to completely miss the point. And if that's one error, though, the other error is this. Since God does it all, I'm just going to sit on the couch and wait for him to do it. So that then when your wife says, hey, I need this, or your children say, hey, we're hungry, you say, I'm going to wait till God moves me to make the chicken nuggets. I'm going to wait until the Holy Spirit fills me before I take out the trash. Okay? He needs to move me around like a puppet. He's the hand, I'm the glove, before this is going to happen. No, we're called to cooperate in those things. Make sense? So, there, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe that gives you a big enough picture. There's obviously a number of little details and ways that we could tangent off and give a fuller description, but does that give you a big picture of how all these things are working together? All right. Yes, please. What you're saying, um, I just want to add, I think this is the part of my Christian life, which is it's the law that drives me to grace. And if it wasn't for the law... I wouldn't even know what grace is about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like St. Paul's point where he talks about coveting. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a beautiful way, if you, just read the, if you just read the Ten Commandments, it's almost like they end with a whimper, not a bang. Thou shalt not covet, you know, big deal. But what's so interesting about coveting is, so coveting would, if you just think of coveting in terms of uh, desiring, constantly not being satisfied, constantly desiring. So that even when you get the thing you're desired, are you done desiring? Well, maybe for that day. <laughs> I don't know. You buy a new car, maybe you're content with it for a month. I, I mean, I don't know. And then all of a sudden you start, did I make the right choice? Uh, Could have done that, you know. So big things, small things, there's, uh, there's a sense in which we're never content and we're always looking for more. And even when you get that thing that you've saved up for forever, it's like, well, I need another one. And you're like, well, I don't really need another one. I'll become a collector. <laughs> All right. So the, where, the, where the Ninth and Tenth Commandments end with a bang is, and this is reflected, I mean, I learned this from St. Paul. St. Paul says, um, if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet, I would not have even known it was a sin. That is to say that it's such a natural, built-in part of who I am, I never would have even guessed it was sinful. 
Isn't it just human to want and want and want and never be satisfied? And the law comes in and goes, no. And that's the, that's the not, not a whimper, but a bang that the law ends with because it shows us how deeply rooted our sins are. Again, to the point where you're not going to overcome that. I'm not going to overcome that. The new man is created in this life. His, his good works are begun in this life. But the first moment of my entire existence in which I will not covet is the moment after I've died. That's why Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? He doesn't just mean like gray hairs and, you know, atrophy, muscular atrophy that happens when you get older and, you know, aches and pains in the joints. That's not what he's saying when he says, who will save me from this body of death? It's, it's that too. But the main thing he has in mind is, Who's going to destroy me in such a way that the coveting me, the desiring me, the lusting me exists no longer, but I live before God in a new way? Thanks be to God. You're helping fulfill the ten, violate the ten commandments. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I, get, I get beat up pretty bad. Yeah, so. I mean, the Ten Commandments are helpful always as a diagnostic tool, also as a guide. I mean, they show us our sin. That's what I mean. They diagnose our condition. The law will always condemn us in that sense before God. That's the Latin phrase, lex semper accusit in the confessions. But if that, but also once we recognize that we're saved from that accusation by Christ, then the law is its accusation is removed and it becomes a guide to us and it becomes wisdom to us. If that's not clear already, it's going to become clearer in the decades to come. So either you'll be in heaven or you'll stick around to see exactly what I'm saying because if you look at what the world will present to us, it's already doing it. What the world presents to us is righteousness. is so filthy, so disgusting, so degraded that the day will come in which we will all just read the Ten Commandments and almost weep for their beauty, for their righteousness, for their glory. That, by the way, is, in a sense, what Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the psalmody, is all about. It's a worship hymn to, yes, the Torah, in the sense, the Lord, the, the, His Word, but as you go along, it's His commandments, it's His precepts, we're not interested here in like, oh, just his gospel. Uh, I delight in his gospel, but not in his... No, you delight in the whole thing because you recognize that God is good and the antithesis is radical evil. Pastor, I don't think we have to wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think, yeah, I think most of us are already at the stage, especially in this room, where we're rejoicing in the law of God because it's righteous and it's a light and it's wonderful and it's good. And, and you know, that helps, you, that helps us too with some other aspects of spiritual health because you can start to realize that the problem isn't the law. The problem is me. Uh, was, the, was the law burdensome to Adam and Eve in the garden? No. Was the law, is the law burdensome to the saints who are in heaven right now? Oh, we got to be good. No. Is the law going to be burdensome to us? That is just to live rightly before God in the new heavens and earth? No. Nothing burdensome about the law, properly speaking. What's burdensome is my flesh who won't keep it. So that even when I resolve to finally do good, I find myself slipping back into that evil I don't want to do, as St. Paul says. Or when I resolve to quit that, that's it. No more coveting. At least for an hour. <laughs> I still can't make it. Because what's my next thought? Ham sandwich sounds really good right now. You know? <laughs> so it's constant, constant sin. And that's what Paul's talking about, about this body of death and who will save us from it, Christ Jesus. And he doesn't there specifically mean so much a cleansing of his blood. That's understood. That's inferred. That's the foundation of it. But what he really understands is the ontological change where that old Adam finally is put to death. I mean, the day of our, that's where God transforms death into its exact opposite. Because death goes from the worst possible thing that could happen to you to the best possible thing that could happen to you. It goes from the destruction of you to the new creation of you. 
goes from the end of you to the beginning of the true you. Death isn't just set aside. Death is completely wrong-sided, outed, inverted, and put to contrary purposes. That's how tremendous Christ's victory over death is. Okay, well, maybe enough on that. So hopefully that gives a big picture sense of what we're talking about. Did we finish this answer on 128? We haven't gotten very far. Probably not. Let's, let's jump back in. So this can be right in the middle. If you're scanning the left-hand side of the paragraph, you'll see the word miserable. Let's just pick up after that next sentence. So you'll see the word miserable on the left-hand side of your page, close to the middle. And you'll see a reference to John 8, 34 and 35. And let's just pick back up there and get a little steam. Chemnitz writes, Then with regard to outward and civil things which are subject to the judgment of reason, likewise with regard to outward discipline, there also unregenerate man has some liberty or ability in mind, will, and heart, and can live blamelessly according to the law. Again, blameless isn't sinless. But this liberty is very weak and limited and spoiled in various ways. But with regard to spiritual matters or actions, as those that belong to the true conversion of man, namely repentance, faith, new obedience, and the things connected with these, natural man of himself and by his first birth, before he is regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, has no powers or ability at all to begin and affect them rightly and as the word of God demands. So just dwell with me on that last sentence because it's so important and it's symmetrical point is important. So in regard to spiritual matters, so we're talking about things like repentance, faith, new obedience, the new man has no powers. And before he is regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he has no powers or ability. What about after he's regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit? Yes, then he has some power and some ability. (laughs) That's the difference that I want you to see. So before, none. After, some. And yes, in great weakness. All right, continuing after the semicolon. In fact, he by nature opposes and resists those spiritual actions. That's why we can't just reason people into the faith. We can't just confront them with their sins, the reality of God, the gospel, and instantly they're converted. It's not simply a matter of ignorance. There's a willful rejection of it in natural man that natural man cannot overcome because he doesn't want to overcome. And that not wanting to overcome his natural self is precisely the bondage to the self or the bondage of the will to its own will. So the problem with a sinner is he wills to be a sinner. And you say, hey, you could be a saint. And he says, no thanks. That's the bondage of the will. So what's the opposite of the bondage of the will? To not be bound to yourself and whatever you want to do and whatever your limitations are, but to be bound to whatever God would have you do. Now, what's the... Maybe think of this by way of analogy. Okay, compare yourself to a lizard. What are the behavioral options that a lizard has? You know, the ones sitting out on your pavers doing push-ups early in the morning. So what are his options? Sit and do push-ups, run away, lick a fly, anything else? Sleep, crawl under your uh, barbecue and sleep. What, other, what else can a lizard do? Yeah. Yeah, it's all, yeah. So, okay, that's all a lizard can do. It, what's that? Lie in the sun? Exactly. Exactly. Run from little girls trying to catch them. That's what happens here at church. Mm-hmm. Get caught, freak out. So, but that's about it. 
I mean, that's about it. Just those handful of things. That's a lizard can't. So this is the analogy we're working with. A lizard can't transcend its lizardliness. Its whole set of options are all just that which a lizard can do. The same way by analogy is a sinner born in the natural state. What can a sinner do? Only sinful things. He can break this commandment, or that commandment, or the other commandment, or any of the other seven commandments, but that's all he can do. All he can choose, in the same way a lizard can only behave according to its lizardliness, a sinner can only behave according to his sinfulness. And so everything he chooses to do is going to be, what do I want to do? What benefits me? Even the altruistic acts aren't altruistic in the absolute sense, because how do they make me feel better about myself? So everything is curved in on itself. The incurvatus in se, the self curved in on itself. And that's the bondage of the will. I'm bound to do only what I want to do. How would you set that lizard free? You'd have to make it something totally different. How would you set that sinner free? You'd have to make it something totally different. And that's precisely Christ's point, that if you have faith in me, I am making all things new, and I am going to make you into something beyond a sinner. And that's where now a saint who has been made a new man, sins cleansed, sins still clinging, cleansed, all the rest, all of a sudden has new motivations and new thoughts. Like you might say, I want to help my neighbor. Well, what's in it for me? Nothing. I want to help my neighbor. Well, what's in it for me? Probably punishment, because no good deed goes unpunished. So, but what has actually happened? Your entire set of being, your entire potentiality of behaviors has now expanded from you as a sinner, which from God's perspective, you're basically like a lizard. You just break the Ten Commandments. That's all you can do. Now, all of a sudden, your set of behavioral possibilities is as vast as what? In a sense, God himself. That's the absolute freedom. That's him calling us outside of ourselves and inviting us to do things that we would never choose or to live through things that we would never choose to live through, but to do so in faith, trusting him, and to do so in love for him and love for neighbor. This is an entire, data, or an entire set of behaviors and attitudes and life that is completely inaccessible to the sinner. Sinner's still living in its little lizard mode, curved in on itself. We have that too, but we fight it because in fighting that is precisely the freedom set forth by God to live not according to our sinful, selfish, curved-in wills, but to live according to his big, huge, eternal, loving will and to be ever conformed into that image of his freedom. So that's the perfect law of liberty or the law of Christ as the scriptures call it, that's what's being stated. Okay? It's, not, it's almost wrong to try to contrast that with the law of Moses. It would be better to think of it as the freedom of being conformed into God's set of possibilities, which are not bound to the self. Does that make some sense? I don't know. That might be a little too abstract. But that's, the kind of the, that's getting at the freedom that God gives us. Okay, so we do have some limited powers and abilities going back to Chemnitz in regard to this. All right, let's go back to natural man. So right where we left off. For scripture predicates two things of natural man. First, it simply robs and deprives him of all those powers and abilities. And a whole slew of biblical references are given here. In fact, it asserts that in spiritual things, such a man is darkness itself. In spiritual things, that man is darkness itself. Again, three scriptural references given. And dead in sins. Two more scriptural references given. Moreover, it ascribes to natural man a heart of stone, hard and perverse, 
which fights against the word of God and is enmity against God. A whole bunch of scripture references given. So a really helpful example to keep in mind here would be Lazarus laying in the tomb. He's dead. That's analogous to us being dead in our trespasses. Can Lazarus choose of his own free will to get up out of the tomb and become alive again? No. Can we who are dead in our trespasses choose to simply be not dead in our trespasses? No. Christ has to call out to Lazarus, Lazarus come forth. It is the word that creates life within Lazarus. Now, similarly, we who are dead in our trespasses, it is the word of Christ, the word of the living God, the proclamation of the gospel, that makes us spiritually alive. We come to life. Now, does Lazarus participate in coming out of the tomb? Of course he does. Does he take credit for that? That'd be absurd. But of course he's still cooperating. (laughs) He doesn't say, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus is alive, and he goes, uh-oh. But <laughs> just lays there pretending to be dead. He's made alive miraculously by Christ, and he participates in coming out of the tomb. And the same way is true for us, that we're, we who are dead in our trespasses are made alive by God through Christ Jesus. It's the preaching of that word that makes us go from people dead to people alive. And then we cooperate by hopping out of the tomb. However feebly we are, all still wrapped up in the bandages of death, hopping out of the tomb, waiting to get unbandaged and unwrapped, which takes a lifetime. So that's, the, that's the, a very helpful way of thinking biblically about these things in a picturesque sort of way. Yes, please. I want to say he responds, he doesn't cooperate. Yeah, well, I would say distinction without a difference. Yeah. Okay. I, the miracle is his being made alive. That's what Christ does through yeah. his word. Okay. And then, but the command is to come forth. And so Lazarus does, in fact, come forth, right? Okay. Um, the Lord doesn't make him alive and then have him float out. Yeah, 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 exactly. So the actions of Lazarus are predicated upon the actions of Christ and are impossible without the actions of Christ. Yeah. So, I mean, does Lazarus going to sit there and be like, yeah, well, I came out of the tomb. No, I mean, no, it's absurd. And that's kind of the absurd thing of like us showing up to heaven and being like, yeah, well, I bore a lot of fruit of the Spirit. I mean, it's, it's just absurd. No, no Christian is ever going to say that. A Christian is going to say, I, I was dead and now I'm alive. You taught, did that. Oh, yeah, people are taught falsely on this point all the time. Yeah, and to some degree it accords with fallen human reason. You just can't sustain it. If you're going to do your theology by Scripture, and again, for those listening online, um, you're going to have to look at these Scripture references if you want to be convinced. But look how many there are. I mean, I I sometimes have told this experience that when I was um, in undergrad and you know, I'd really, I mean, probably fallen away from the faith by and large, but by God's grace had come back to it, and I started reading the book of Concord. Even as I had come back to it, I had this natural idea that there was free will, and you either make a decision for God or against God, and then whether you're in heaven or hell, it all seems fair and just, and insofar as it goes, it does seem fair and just. And then I got to Article 2 of the Formula of Concord, as I was reading, and it's on free will, and it just outright says we don't have free will. And of course, that was just offensive and appalling to me, and I, didn't, and I thought, well, maybe I'm not Lutheran. That'd, that'd be interesting. Um, maybe I'm Christian, but not Lutheran. And then I started looking at the Scripture references, and the Scripture references, and the Scripture references. And there are, I'm, I don't know how many there are. There are dozens of scriptural references. And the point is, if even one of those is, is true, then free will's no more. And there are dozens, almost as if God really wants to make a point of that. So you find a verse that even is like, you did not choose me, I chose you. And it's like, well, there goes free will. So you're either going to believe what you want to believe at that point, or you're going to believe what the Bible says. And that's then what you come to realize, and I did many, many years down the line, what you come to realize is you're so lost in your sins that even what you think is right is completely wrong. And you need the Bible to tell you that, look, you're so lost in your sins, you're blind. 
you have no idea. You, one of the greatest blindnesses is you think you have free will to make a decision for Jesus. That's blindness. You have no such ability. Right? Now, once God has converted you, can you make a decision to do the right thing or the wrong thing? Can you make a decision to pray or not pray? Can you make the decision to suffer or not suffer? Yeah, in many cases, you can. And there is a call and there is a cooperation. But that's all the fruit of something that Christ has already done and worked within you. All right, so the natural man cannot turn himself toward God according to the scriptures. God must do it. That much is clear. Let's get one more. 129 is then true conversion there and true, uh, excuse me, is then true conversion there and true contrition in conversion where there is altogether no change and where there are no feelings in the mind, will, and heart of man. So let me try to summarize the question. The question is, is a person converted or does a person experience contrition in conversion if he feels nothing? And if he senses no change in his mind, will, and heart? And the answer is no. Obviously. For repentance or contrition takes place and exists when a man acknowledges his sins, seriously considers in his heart the threats of divine wrath, truly fears the wrath of God, and is sorry for sins in such a way that with unfeigned resolution he turns himself from them and with a troubled heart is concerned lest he be forever damned, etc. And look, this is where, I mean, contrary to the spirit of the age and the spirit of modern psychology, this is where it's spiritual health to be concerned that you be forever damned. That's, that's simply a part of being Christian this side of heaven. We can be at peace with God, know he's at peace with us, have a right conscience, but we still conduct ourselves with a certain kind of fear and trembling because we know that we could slip. The devil could devour us just that easily. We could lose it all. And so there is this continual concern that we, be, that we not be damned. All right, finishing out Chemnitz's point. When then such a change does not take place in a man, and there are no feelings of this kind, it is, and I would say maybe experiences, would be good because it embraces the intellect as well. Maybe a translational issue. Anyway, where there are no feelings of this kind, it is certain that no true conversion or contrition whatsoever is there either. So, you know, I think this is... He's talking about conversion from unbelief to faith. This can sometimes happen in those who have been converted. They fall away. So they have been converted. They, they feel these changes. They experience these changes. Everything's legit. But over time, it deadens. And they no longer feel it. And they no longer experience it. And, you simply, and they simply say, like, like well, I don't know. It would be something like this. Like, why are you just living in sin? Do you not feel any guilt? Do you not feel compelled to confess? Compelled to be forgiven? And the answer is just, meh. No, not really. Such a person is now in need of being converted once more. Such a person has fallen from the faith. They've fallen to a state of unbelief. By the way, you don't just slip and fall into that condition. That condition usually comes by not going to church, or by going to church and not listening, by going to the sacrament without acknowledging or meditating on what it is you're receiving and why you're receiving it. That, it's those kinds of things that lead to that spiritual deadness, and it takes time, and it's not like you slip, fall overnight, and you're a hypocritical Christian. Okay, so it's a long process of rejecting the things that God has for you. Because if you're, and by going to church, I really mean this, encountering Christ where two or three are gathered in his name and there he is. And you've got to close your, close your perception to his presence. You've got to 
close your ears to his words being spoken to you present tense. You've got to close your heart to his absolution and his supper as he gives it to you in all earnestness, my body and blood given and shed for you, requiring your heart to believe for the forgiveness of your sins. You have to, you have to harden yourself off from all of that in order to land in this place where you're just like, yeah, I'm just, meh, I'm not even really a Christian anymore. I don't really care. I guess I'm a Christian, but I'm not doing any Christian stuff. So, again, don't let this... Uh, Don't let this give you unnecessary consternation. We're a few minutes over. Let's stop there. Let's uh, hit 1.30 next week. The Lord be with you.